So really just creating robustness, maintaining tissue health. You do see with these guys, when you do have a guy, which happens, some guys take one to two weeks off lifting and you do start to see things on their force plate numbers go down. You start to okay. see force at zero go down. Eccentric RFD goes down. You start to see peak force go down. These, these things that do help you buffer ground reaction force do start to change. That was Daniel Bove, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast, starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout, and I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it, and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, and thanks for joining us today. A few episodes of the podcast ago, Coach Michael Zwiefel had said that every coach, regardless of where or what population is in front of you right now or what population you hope to work with someday, you should at least at some point in your coaching be working with youth sports, and be working with athletes on the pro level. And of course, it's a little bit harder to get your foot in the door on that pro level of coaching, but the principle is true. It's, it's helpful to see where did athletes start and where do they finish. And it helps us to appreciate and understand to a higher degree that total journey of the athlete and where they are along the way. And for this show, we're going to be getting into the nuances of that pro side of the equation. We've had a lot of shows speaking on youth sport dynamics, youth sport development, and I haven't had quite as many that real, really dial in to that pro side. So for this show, I'm really excited to have our guest, Daniel Bove. Daniel is the Director of Performance and Sports Science for the New Orleans Pelicans. He's also the author of the book, The Quadrant System, Navigating Stress in Team Sport, and Daniel has also spent time in the pro sector with the Atlanta Hawks and the Phoenix Suns. In his work, Daniel has come up with a unique system of load consolidation for athletes uh, working with that NBA population, and he calls this the quadrant system. So on the show today, Daniel will go through that quadrant system, the different types of loadings that he will impart onto the players, and how that fits in this lock and key manner with the different types of stressors players have during their training week and training season. Daniel will speak on specifically, and maybe you read the title of this show, but how he fits that lifting that heavier strength stimulus into game day, into competition. And that will go into how he keeps his highs high and his lows low. So he'll be going into that high-low style of training. He'll be getting into some of the other elements of the quadrant, such as the repetition day, the speed day, and where those fit in in the course of his training week. This is a show that, although it deals with more of the pro end of the spectrum, you can see how things change as you move to the college level, the high school level. And it's really interesting to understand this because it definitely just gives you a different lens on load management, a vital part of working with the athlete and helping them to be their best on game day, to recover, to manage long seasons and have some fun along the way. So this was a really cool show and it was really great to sit down and talk with Daniel on his training ideology. And I learned a lot. I know you will too. Let's get on to it. Episode 292 with performance director, Daniel Bove. Daniel, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on here. And for your listeners, we actually did one a couple of years ago that never came out because I think I switched teams like a week after we re recorded the podcast and we just decided to nix that one. But it's, it's I'm really pumped to be back on here. Yeah, yeah. I, I forgot when that last one was that did never come out. Maybe we'll just tack it on the end of this <laughs> episode. Yeah, it was in the middle of the bubble. It was like right when the bubble was happening in uh, Orlando. Yeah, so I, I know uh, our time is limited, so let's get right to it. I know you have the uh, your new book out. Tell us a little bit about the four quadrants. So the four quadrants of training, 
And how do you categorize load uh, for the athletes that you work with? Yeah, so the system was sort of developed over the last few years of working in the NBA. You know, when you're when you're trying to talk to coaches about workloads and planning of workloads, and you're trying to make it as simple as possible with not only the variables you're using, but like, you know, you want to show them visuals. And I've always found quadrants uh, and like a scatter plot to be a really, really powerful tool for showing coaches, hey, this is kind of where we fell today, or this is where we fell yesterday. And here's sort of where I want to push the team from a stress standpoint going into the, the coming days. So, you know, over the last five, six years in the league, you know, there's, you know, I've used you know, acute workloads, chronic workloads, acute chronic ratio, which is kind of, you know, out of style right now. <laughs> um, but what it really came down to was communicating with something as easy as time on feet and whether or not someone played live basketball or they didn't play live basketball on a given day. And that sort of gave me the, the four quadrants. So if, if you, you know, I'm going to describe this to the listeners, it's a lot easier to have a visual, but if you think about a scatter plot with an X and Y axis, we have the X axis, which actually is represented by intensity. So you can think left side of the axis is non-live play. Right side of the axis is going to actually be uh, like an intense live play, five on five, what have you. And then the Y axis is going to be uh, time. Or you know, if you want to use GPS or some type of an accelerometer, you can use an ex- external workload measure as well. But I usually have used time. So the bottom of the line meaning zero, and then the top two to three hours at the top, just in my personal experience. And then that gives you four quadrants. And the premise of the book was really to give people an idea of what my philosophy looks like from a stress management standpoint, mainly how to consolidate stress. So you have what happens on the court, and then you have what we try to implement as a stimulus in the weight room. How do we take those two stimuli, blend them together in a cohesive plan that does not detract from performance and you know hopefully improves performance? That's the one goal of the book. So to figure out how we consolidate stress. And the other one is to manage chaos. So when I say manage the chaos, I'm really talking about in pro sport and in a high frequency pro sport, similar to the NBA, uh, you know, you're playing three to four games per week. You're changing time zones, you know, ton of travel. Sometimes you have a back-to-back and things change. You know, what you, you plan on tomorrow being a really long, hard practice, last minute it changes to an off day or vice versa. You have an off day that was originally planned and then it ends up changing to kind of a moderate practice and having to change on the dot within a 12 to 24 hour period and uh, having to adjust your program accordingly. So then what I really created with the quadrants is just a decision matrix. Okay. I can really quickly talk to a coach. Uh, what are you thinking for tomorrow? How long are you thinking? Oh, cool. 90 minutes. Awesome. Are they going to play live or are they not going to play live? They're going to play live. Okay. How much? Those two or three questions gives me a great idea of, okay, this is what we can stress in the weight room, or this is what we can pull back on based on this, those conversations. So the book really dives into those concepts of, okay, how do we train when we're in a high volume, high intensity day? How do we train when it's low volume, high intensity and so on? So that's kind of a, a synopsis of, of what the book tried to accomplish. Awesome. So in those four quadrants, so actually I was drawing them out as you were talking. And so we have um, that I'm assuming on like the bottom left, that's like low time, low intensity, top right, you have more time, high intensity, like what exists in those quadrants? So what different types of load or training fits in each of those four? So just before I even get into that, I would like to people to know that I don't even think my model that I have in the book is necessarily perfect for every single sport. What I have found to work with my model, with my quadrants, has really worked for basketball, but I'm not necessarily saying that works for hockey, for soccer, for football, for a combat sport. Uh, In fact, people have messaged me, asking me ideas on on certain things, and I've changed a couple of the quadrants up just based on, you know, a different, different environment. So what I've done with my quadrants is quadrant one being low intensity, low volume. It's obviously a rest day, right? We don't do training on that day. If we do anything, it's facilitated recovery or low intensity, kind of a flush. We'll go up to a quadrant two, which would be a high volume, low intensity day, more of a walkthrough, more skill oriented, not as intense, not really playing live on a day like that. That's a day where um, we're looking at repetition, time under tension. That's where we can really attack tissue quality. And the good thing about those days, as far as in basketball, is that our quadrant two days tend to be 
two to three games removed from competition. So when we have a game and then we have a few days in between, you're always going to have a quadrant two in there. And they're usually spaced out well enough where if that tissue work makes guys sore, which our guys do it consistently enough that it's not really making them sore, it, you at least have time to recover. So then we go down to quadrant three, which is going to be low volume, high intensity. Those are the days where maybe you, maybe you touch and dabble with some live play, but it's a shorter practice. It could even be a game day for some guys. If you don't have a shoot around, you have a short walkthrough or no walkthrough, guys at the court, they play 20, 30 minutes. That could constitute as a quadrant three as well. Now, I have that labeled as a speed quadrant. We also, you know, train power in that range. And I'm sure we'll get more to it, but it doesn't always mean like high velocity sprinting speed, right? It's just kind of over a certain threshold for, you know, if we're using a barbell or using a trap bar, it's not allowing to go below a certain speed zone. And then we go up to quadrant four, which I've constituted as strength. And that, again, is below a certain speed threshold. And that tends to be, because it's high volume, high intensity, that's obviously the day that most athletes, at least in basketball, I've found they obviously consider that to be the hardest day on court. And then when I'm looking at the type of stressors that we impose on guys that we use in the weight room, strength tends to be the one that they feel is the most stressful. So I put that as number, basically a quadrant four. So I matched up strength with high intensity, high volume. And those are our game days, typically game days or long intense practices, training camp days. But in the midst of the NBA season, when you're having shoot arounds and you're playing a lot, that tends to be a quadrant four day. And those are the days we lift heavy. Got it. So, yeah, because I was trying to figure out how do you like when you first laid out the quadrant, I was thinking about it just from a, you could have like two columns, right? You could have mm. and you probably I'm sure you do like you have all the different training modalities. You have the recovery reps, speed and strength. And then you also have different probably intensities of practice. But that's also where it's interesting too, or like a game versus a practice. like an athlete who plays a lot in a game. So are you saying that, and I think this is probably true, right? Because you do post about game day lifting a lot, but the strength fits if it was to be like a lock and key, like the complementary stimulus is with a game, but it's just how much you do of the strength depends on how much you played. Would that be accurate? Or could you describe how those different stimuli fit with what kind of practice you had? No, that's a great, that's a great, question and I, I mentioned it briefly in in the book and kind of i labeled it the no zone so we do have guys who fall into quadrant four you know i like most of our guys unless they're doing kind of speed and power work i prefer them to lift post game so most of our lifting i'd say 90 percent of our lifting is going to be a post game lift so when we look at that there are guys you know or you go into overtime you go in double overtime or you have a player who plays 42 43 minutes there are cutoffs right like Without getting too specific on what my cutoffs are, there are times when the guy comes in, he played 40, 42 minutes where you say, nah, you know what? We're not, we're cutting it. We're in that no zone area. It's a little too much today. I, we were originally going to trap our deadlift heavy. We're going to avoid that today. We'll, we'll get after it tomorrow. All right. And we move on. But then you have the guys that play 20, 20 to 35 and, and they're lifting heavy post game. So you can bucket guys by how much they play. And I mentioned this too in the book as well, like when you have to pay attention to acute loads too and chronic loads and what has the last week looked like? Are you in a four and five? Because actually right now I'm in Cleveland and we are in the middle of a four and five. So you're playing four games in five nights. You have to take that into account when you're programming your lifts. Mm-hmm. And maybe those game nights, maybe that you don't lift on those game nights. So it, you have to take into account the whole schedule and everything is context specific. specific. Sure. That's interesting because it, it's, it's funny I mean, I have no experience working as a pro basketball strength coach. It's just, it, it's, it's interesting to me how different that is versus someone who, let's say, works with high school basketball players, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. they're not going to play four games in five days, or not to mention, like, the length of the, the games and, and all that. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just interesting to me how stress changes. Uh, now, if you, like, let's just say, for example, you talked about the quadrant being different. And I don't want to get too far away with some of the, from some of the core components because I want to spend most of the time speaking on that. But let's just say you, it was now high school basketball and mm-hmm. it's just you're playing less. Maybe the games aren't quite as draining. It's not as long of a season. For that type of individual, I don't know if you've had people in that situation reach out to you. I mean, college, obviously, somewhere similar to what you're doing, but probably in the middle a little bit. How might things change or alter or do you have any thoughts as you get further down away from the pro level and that unique stressor? 
You know, I view that like a sport with a longer microcycle. I, I look at that the same way I look at what the off season can look like with an athlete. When I was first getting into the sports science like side of things, I was really interested in the Verheyen stuff and a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff is outstanding when it, it looks at the, the weekly microcycle of a soccer or a football team. And you see the undulations of loads, like the the, the slow increase and then the, the decrease, and it fits so perfectly into a week. And you obviously have a lot more flexibility to build out a plan like that when you're in a high school setting or when you're in the off season training an athlete. I still think a lot of the principles should remain the same though. I do think like the intense days should be intense across the board. I still think the volumes should be higher across the board and low when they're supposed to be low. I do think you need to treat it like a symphony. The things need to fit. It's a puzzle. And although they don't have the schedule constraints that we have, I think the principles could be very similar. Yeah. I think the interesting thing to me is the high low. Mm-hmm. Just I know and you've written about that. You were writing about it in the book, the idea that I think it's very easy for sport practices to all fall into just everything medium, you know, like everything's medium in the sport and the sport practice. And so how do we complement that? I mean, I guess you could just microdose, right? Just kind of roll with it, do the minimal dose each day, make sure you're doing no harm. It's interesting to me that like fitting the intense game with the intense lift. And obviously I'm sure that the volume is quite low. And like you said, some players Mm -hmm. won't even do it at all. That's, I mean, it, it, that's very interesting to me. It does certainly make sense with a lot of what I've done in track and field, though. You, you have just a couple intense pieces that go together and then have a, you know, when you rest, you definitely want to go a little bit easier. What I was going to ask you, though, is so if the game, and obviously you have a lot more of intensity in the game, especially the crowds there and there's more adrenaline mm-hmm. and all that, but like the repetition, like, would you not do like a heavy strength stimulus really during practice during the week? You you really are saving that for the competition days? Or could you explain that a little bit how a rep based, a higher rep training mm-hmm. system versus like a real strength stimulus and how that fits with practice? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. When you look at an MD season, you have anywhere from zero days to four days in between contests throughout the course of the year. And it changes, it, you know, this week's two days between game next week's three, then you get one then you get back to back. So it's always changing. And that's one of the reasons that I made the quadrant system to, you know, accommodate that constant changing of microcycle duration, but yeah, no. So most of the time, if you're with a coach that pays attention to loads and how you pattern that throughout the week and is, is in an open communication stream with the performance staff, you don't tend to have a ton of quadrant four days, high volume, high intensity practices in between contests. You save those. Those do exist during training camp or maybe like post all-star or whatever. But for the most part, you're going to have ones, twos, and threes in terms of quadrants throughout the course of a year separating games. So then we have, could be a rest day. It could be a speed and power day, or it can be a repetition day. And, and like I said earlier, repetition days tend to fall at least two days out from competition. And those are great days for tissue quality. So Quadrant threes tend to be the day before a contest. So if I do have one day separating two two days or two games, I would rather it be a quadrant three where guys feel a little bit potentiated. They feel a little bit faster. The loads tend to be a little bit lower and not as fatiguing as maybe a two would be um, the day before a game. So a lot of this gets into like, do you have that conversation with the coach or do you have that open channel to be able to communicate and you know trust each other to build out a plan that allows these things to kind of take place? Blood work is a common analysis in the regime of elite athletes. It quantifies many dimensions and metrics of an athlete's physiology and helps one to see windows of potential performance improvement. Today's episode is also sponsored by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. The company uses a blood test and patented algorithm to analyze your body's physiological markers, providing you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you. Inside Tracker then offers science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. In using Inside Tracker myself, it was truly fascinating to see the many metrics of my own physiology, looking at things like hormone levels, inflammation, blood oxygen-related metrics, and much more. If you are interested in an Inside Tracker analysis, for a limited time you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. And to get that discount, head to insidetracker.com/justflysports. Yeah, could you elaborate a little bit more on that that speed complement? Sure. And 
just because I there's been a couple, it's been more than one uh, guest on the show who've talked about, and not just in basketball, but other sports as well, the idea that, and I think their frame is a little bit different than yours, mm-hmm. but I think there's some similarities, but like they'll come back off a game or a competition with more of a slower strength stimulus. I imagine maybe it's not as high of intensity as, as the intensity you get to on your game days, but then the closer to the game, then the speed, the speeds might go up. They might be doing some more explosive things. So how does, tell me more about the speed day or like the flow yeah. of that in the week. And the way I always look at it too, sorry, I was throwing my last two cents in, <laughs> is, yeah, go ahead. I mean, like players, basketball, like basketball or any sport, these, these guys are being explosive in their practice and their sport. I, I guess, how do you feel? Because I'm always trying in my own mind and regardless of who I'm working with, I'm always trying to make a case for the middle, you know, like it, the, the mm-hmm. ends are easy. Like we have you know, maximal recruitment, you know, that's good. We have a recovering type stimulus. So you could, you know, high rep or ISOs or whatever. But when we get in the middle, I, you could say, well, they're playing in the middle. You know, that's all the stuff in the middle. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm just curious where, where the speed fits in and how you feel that complements and then where you're really keying in to use that. Yeah, this is, I love this podcast because your questions are so like well thought out. And this is, this is really what, People like I know me and Corey Schlesinger talk about this all the freaking time mm-hmm. is, OK, are they fast and do we need to even train that? And I think when I look at the quadrant three, what I'm really con- referring to is it's, it's really a lot of power. But this might confuse a little bit of some people, but you can get stronger on a quadrant three as well. And when I talk about velocities, it's pretty much anything above 0.75 meters per second. So you can train in the 0.75 to 1.0 meters per second, like zone and guys, while that it's kind of like a power zone, you're going to get stronger there too. So guys are not training, like they're not going out and running like max velocity sprints. Um, although like you could, but that's not really what the day is exactly, but I'm not even referring to max velocity as much as I am things that aren't grindy things that aren't really, really heavy, slow lifts, because my population, they tend to view that as the most taxing, most stressful, which is why I have placed it after a game day. So when we're talking about lifting, we're talking about 0.75 meters per second and above on a quadrant three, but we're also talking about med ball throws. We're talking about any type of agility work, the things that you see Lee Taft post with the, with all the low box work that he does, which I'm a huge fan of, those type of things. You can even, you know, while it's fast, doing those movements with a med ball increases impulse. So there's things you can do that aren't necessarily max velocity, even though it's the speed quadrant. It's really just saying, hey, it's faster than the grindy shit that you do on a quadrant four. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I could see, I guess I'm just trying to think about this in the sense of even like agility. Like I, I could see med ball work as that's, to me, that's like, it's explosive ballistic, it's complementary. Would more of the agility work, would that fit more into the off season or I guess with what the players are doing and, and like, you know, the person, I'm, I'm kind of curious where that fits in with a pro space. Cause I, I guess I think about like perception reaction stuff and what's, right. what are we, what bucket are we trying to fill or what gap are we trying to fill? So I'm, I'm curious with, with that. And then also, or maybe I'll just start there. Uh, I did have a question mm-hmm. about the bar speed stuff, but um, no, to start that's there. a great question. And I would say the amount of agility work, change of direction training that high minute, high usage athletes are doing is minimal. Those guys are not doing a lot, but the development projects that I work really closely with our player development staff on, we have a great, great player development staff, Teresa Weatherspoon, WNBA Hall of Famer, Corey Brewer, former NBA player. We work really closely together on certain movements on court that guys just need to get a little bit better at, whether that's you know running a curl towards the basket, coming off a screen setting a pick, whatever it is, and then looking at, okay, how can we make him a little bit stronger there? How can we make him make this a little bit crisper? And there are a ton of things on a quadrant three day that you can do to make that better. Because I really do think, and we talked about this before this call, there is that middle ground between hardcore SNC and skill training. There does need to be kind of a bridge. And I think there is kind of a, a skill transfer portion that a lot of strength coaches tend to shy away from because I think it's really hard and it makes you come to come to grips with the fact that maybe you're not as good at the, at the sport as you could be as a coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. So people are scared of what they don't always know. And then they, they hold on real tight to their things they love, which I'll admit, I love the Olympic lifts and I love the big three, but um, sometimes you got to get out of your comfort zone. And I do think there is a place for sports specific training. And I think that sports specific training falls on a quadrant three. 
Got it. Okay. Well, that makes sense to me. Yeah, it is interesting how I, I was just thinking of this earlier today, the idea of like if you have extreme like skill on one end and extreme just like strength and conditioning in the sense extreme strength and conditioning to me it's almost like just like a a slow lift or even an isometric hold for a long period of time like something where Mm. you there's not much moving and a lot of it is within the movement the awareness is within there's not like balls flying around or people to keep track of it's a very different zone of awareness and as soon as balls are flying around and there's people and there's plays and there's tactics like that's so (laughs) it's it's, those are so different and Mm. but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't at least at least try to be familiar with the demands of the the open chaos and so it's cool to hear you talk about i mean some of this seems very like it has to be integrated and because i think about has to be it seems like it might be hard or harder to do something like the quadrant system if the coaching staff wasn't like there there wasn't a lot of communication they're like all right we're i think we're going to do this for practice and maybe just every practice, like I said before, like turns into kind of a medium and you don't, as a strength coach, just kind of have to react Mm. and maybe you're not sure. I mean, speak maybe a little bit on that strength coach player interaction to that you feel like is really necessary to make this come to life. And if someone has, uh, or, or maybe not, or if someone has a sport coach and they're, that strength coach doesn't have a seat at the table, how might this change? What are some thoughts on that? So what's funny is that when I when I made this system and had no plans of it being a book, no plans. It was kind of just this is how I program, this is how I operate in the day to day, this is how I survive, and then put it on paper. It was all developed as a reactive system. It was developed with the intent of I'm going to lift all my guys after they practice always because I don't always know what coach is going to do. I don't always know what you know, and I've had a ton of NBA coaches in my my career and. They're all great, but some have different ways of doing things than others. And sometimes you don't always know what practice is going to be like. Sometimes you do get a practice plan ahead of time, or you know the day before, you know a couple days before what a specific day is going to look like. And then sometimes you're reactive and you kind of have to just be there, experience it. And then, okay, guys, we're lifting. And that is kind of where it all came from, having to make a quick decision on what today's lift's going to look like. But I agree with you. There's, there's definitely a lot more you can do and you can go a lot deeper when you do have that that open channel to communicate what player A should do versus player B and you know how you want to approach a quadrant 3 with you know the backup point guard versus versus a quadrant 3 with the backup power forward there's a million different ways you can take this but does that answer your question Joel yeah a little bit <laughs> i <laughs> i mean i'm just guessing that yeah there's there's always going to be different coaches and there's always different ways that you'll need to react my thought is if you feel like maybe in the situation where you feel like there's just not a lot of windows, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, it's like, I just don't know when there's going to be that window. And again, I, there is that like, well, if I'm the strength coach or the sports performance coach, my job is to fill the buckets that aren't being filled. So I don't know, I guess my, my question would be more when you know it's you're going to be working with a coach where you're going to be more reactionary in nature. What are some specific like changes, things to look out for, things that you will have to do to accommodate? Would the days change in nature at all? Or would you just do less of them? I mean, I, I feel like it would be easiest to just say, hey, we're going to just do 10 minutes of ISOs after we practice then and, and see it. You know, I don't know. Like, I'm just curious if you were in a more reactionary space, how, how that might change. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I've been, I've been in those reactionary environments in the NBA and what I do know, like, and I talked about this briefly in the book too, is is a quadrant four, if things are done where practices are extremely high load, high intensity, they could they become your quadrant fours and then your game days become a three. Okay. And that's not ideal. That's not like what you would want if you're trying to if you're trying to say, hey, this is the perfect plan. This is how in a in a vacuum, this is the perfect plan that I would I would orchestrate. It's not perfect, but it, it has happened before with coaches I've worked with where your practices are super high. They're way higher than your game days, and then game days are three. And, and the debate I always got into coaches with was, well, you know, when you, when you have a boxing fight coming up, you train 20 rounds for 10 rounds or 12 rounds. Like, it's like, yeah, but you don't do that the day before you box. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But unfortunately, you know, sometimes you, do, you are put in those situations where that occurs. I haven't dealt with that in a long time, but that is something that happens from, from time to time. So 
that being said, your game days become a different stimulus than those long practice days. And you have to adjust as a coach in the moment. And that's just where experience comes along. I will say you're always juggling. Like when you mentioned doing the ISOs with the population I'm dealing with, like they, they have access to whatever they want to do, even outside of working with me, when they leave the arena or they leave the practice facility, they have the ability to work with any strength coach out there. And some of them do have their, their guys on the side that they do a little bit of accessory work with, or, you know, they do some extra either recovery or maybe some manual work with it all exists. So you do have, there is a certain point where like you do need to give these guys novel things that keeps them engaged. So, you know, I, I can't just do ISOs with them every single day because they want to rip my head off if I do that yeah, because it would not be 82 that games, fun. 82 games is a lot. 82 games is a lot. It's a long season and you do have to come up with things that keep guys coming back for more. Yeah. And I think kind of the, yeah, it's almost like some of the spirit of the, like the ISOs mentality is if you're a, like the perfect athlete, you can, this will be all you need, but it's like, okay, yeah, if I'm perfect and I don't get bored with anything, yeah, like, great. <laughs> but it's Dude. it's not going to be real, like just little twists and nuances and all that. I mean, it's it definitely, yeah, in an 82-game season, I mean, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I love ISOs, but like these aren't robots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it does, you can only do ISOs so many times in a week before guys start to, to tell you to F off. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so with the heavy loading, because I... This is something I think about a lot in the sense of, okay, if a job exists, uh, like like the strength code job exists, and so there's all the things that, the buckets that need to be filled. But at the end of the day, typically, like strength and conditioning professionals enjoy heavy lifting. They like seeing mm-hmm. lifting PRs. That's part of feeling like, yes, like this is part of what I do. But then you have the stress and the loads of in-season. I always think about, I mean, again, I haven't worked in the pro athlete like population where I'm going through this. So this is just conjecture to me, but I'm I'm always one to play devil's advocate a little bit in the sense of what do you feel like is the value? Like I like easy strength a lot in the sense of, you know, 60, 80% and just, and, and smaller doses. And that could be even be like kind of a microdose type mentality. My question is in the midst of all the load and all the other things players are doing, and I'm totally open, like my ears are totally open with this one, but what, what is the value? Like what does heavier loading like a heavy trap bar deadlift, like what does that do in terms of what you're seeing on like like testing players' data mentally? What's the buy-in with that? I'm just curious because I think that's a little bit of a touch point that I just think it's interesting because we always want to validate ourselves by injecting these stimuli in there. But I'm curious what what specifically you feel like that does that is better off than just kind of going in that medium lifting zone. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think when you look holistically at you look at a basketball athlete and it's a sport where rhythm and skill play such a big you know part in what they do and you do always wonder it's like does just getting him really strong does that make them better at their sport i do think guys who become a little bit stronger develop a little bit better rfd rate of force development in conjunction with getting better at their skills and you know making sure their tendons are healthy i do think you're setting the athlete up for success to be a little bit more of a robust athlete, which I'll be honest with you. And I know we talked about this before, I think off air, being a stress manager is part Mm -hmm. of what the job is as an SNC coach at the pro level. So really just creating robustness, maintaining tissue health, maintaining, you do see with these guys, when you do have a guy, which happens, some guys take one to two weeks off lifting and you do start to see things on their force plate numbers go down. You start to see force at zero go down. Eccentric RFD goes down. You start to see peak force go down. These, these things that do help you buffer ground reaction force do start to change. So I do think a healthy dose at healthy volumes when it's at the proper time of heavy lifting can be very beneficial. And even from a hormonal standpoint, you do get a benefit from it. So that would be my, my take on that. Cool. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what I was curious of because I mean, for me, again, I, I don't have experience with that population, but it's like if you're seeing things change on the force plate when that stimuli is not in the system, then that's like that's the answer. Like here's what's changing. We took this out and then here's what's changing. Mm. I'm curious how much how much of it do you actually have to do to keep that those that RFD from dropping off? Like what's the I mean, I'm sure you are not doing much doses, especially after like games and things like that. Or, or are you? I mean, what, what's the type of volume these athletes are looking at? I know you said based off their playing time, there's that 40 minute and then there's that like, like it was maybe like 25 to 40 or 15 to 40. And then the people who didn't play much at all. 
how does that change how much volume they're actually doing on those game days? Joe, could you re- rephrase the question? I, I I think I might have misinterpreted what you were oh, what you were saying. Sorry, basically, how many how many sets? What's the the total amount of reps or the total volume these athletes are doing for the heavy strength mm-hmm. component, like the post game days? How much are they actually doing? So, what I would say, like the most that we'll do heavy post game is like a three by five in terms of reps. Say we're doing trap bar on a given day. We could do a three by five, depending on what our acute load is during that, that time, or we can do a three by four or a three by three. We're going heavy. We're talking 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6 meters per second, right? Somewhere in that range. And then on a day where it's like, okay, like I want volume really low. We're just going to hit heavy singles and we're just going to do three by one. And I'm just going to let you feel that, or we'll do an overcoming. And I'll just have you pull into the rack. We'll do, you know, five second pulls into the rack split squat or whatever but um i tend to manipulate the volume based on where the team is at from an acute load standpoint how many games they've played in a seven to ten day period and that tends to inform me on okay this is how much volume is going to be tonight i wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor simplyfaster.com simplyfaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In simplyfaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines, such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units. Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units such as the 1080 Sprint, force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. One thing I was going to ask you with the like the heavy lifting after the game type thing would be like mental and emotional, like players lost the game or they had a bad game. I mean, I guess you could like you say, like there's the robustness element, right? Like you still got to do it. Like how does that play in though? If if there was like a negative outcome and managing some of the, I guess the the other the X factors with with those types of things that happen. Yeah, so that you obviously you're going to have that. You're going to have the guys that have a you know they foul out or they they get dunked on and they. <laughs> I can think of so many instances when I was actually with Corey and Phoenix, one in particular where a guy was so pissed because he got dunked on extremely hard by John Morant. And uh, he came in the, the gym and threw a bench across the, he was, he was a large human and he threw a bench across the, the room. And if it would have hit, hit someone, someone was going to, going to be going to the ER. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that happens. And in those situations, like you have some guys that can channel it and can actually use that that rage and that adrenaline into their lift, and then it actually becomes a great lift because mm-hmm. they're pissed off. Or then you have the guys that kind of are like, "Hey, I need, I need, I need tonight. I'll come in tomorrow and I'll do it." That's not ideal, but we'll get it in, right? Like you have to adapt. On that same note, I've actually found from a buy-in standpoint, and this is more like you obviously have what I believe is optimal with keeping the physical stressors consolidated on the same day. But I even believe that athletes are more, in my, my opinion, they're more receptive to training hard on the days that are supposed to be hard. And when they have the easy days, those are the days they really want Mm. to be easy. So when I'm really trying to get a guy, like there's a guy on the team, maybe who, who never lifted, didn't lift much in college, never lifted before college comes to the NBA. I'm expecting him to lift. It's much easier for me to get him on a game day for some reason, for some innate reason, I don't know mm-hmm. what it is. It's a lot easier to get them on the day that they're actually have a higher arousal, arousal, a day that they're actually kind of pumped up versus a day when maybe it's an easy practice day or a walkthrough that I'm trying to get something done and they just, they just aren't really into it. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I would have never thought about that. It does make me think about like Charlie Francis talking about to like get the stadium lights on takes a lot of power, but once they're on, you got to take advantage of the fact that they're on. <laughs> And so yeah. that make I was going to ask you, um, there's something to that. Yeah. There's a hundred percent something to that. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's also, yeah, there's environmental like too, and getting people like really up for the, the, you know, just the day in general and getting the adrenaline going. And yeah, that's, I, I remember even, you know, it's funny. I remember back when I was just 
playing basketball in high school, like before the game, we would always um, just be in the weight room before the weight room was right next to the gym. So we would just like have team meetings in there. And I just remember like one day there was just like 135 pounds sitting on the bar, which is not much, but I, I didn't do any snatches in high school and just like cleans and stuff. But I was like, oh, I wonder if I could snatch this. And like, it was easy. <laughs> like, and I'm saying like, that wasn't a lot of weight, but for someone who hadn't really done it and I mean, right. it, it was, yeah, but I feel like that, that adrenaline that day was like, yeah, like, let's go. Like, so it, <laughs> I, I was going to say like, ask, well, I was going to ask you though. I mean, and that's, that's a cool anecdote with the game day and that perceptions, like, like if I think the perception would be, could perhaps be, and this is just only based off my observations, but there's going to be a few players that might not just like lifting heavy, right? Like what's your experience with that? And then how do you. I guess, yeah, you talked about buy-in, but uh, like, what's your experience with the spectrum of your players and how they buy into uh, that system and, and that game day lift and going heavier and things like that? What's been your observation with the, with the response? Well, you have to, it's, it's crazy because one of the, one of the unique challenges with working in the NBA is that you have a roster of 15 guys. A lot of them, they've all had strength coaches before. They've all been in different either organizations or with a college team or, you know, foreign teams where things are done a certain way and they come in and and they maybe one player likes to do his, you know, work for his quad in this way or another guy likes to work on his hamstrings this way or, or whatever it is. And they come to the table with, hey, this has worked for me before. Can we continue to do this? And you have to work with that to a certain degree at the same time, showing them where you want to take them and having objective information and objective goals that you can actually show them, Hey, that's great. I love, I love what you're doing there. Let's throw in a little bit of this. And then slowly we're going to gravitate towards that, but you have to show them exactly what you're trying to do. Now, some guys are motivated by just getting better on the court. And there are things that you can show them, whether it's on the force plate, whether it's with whatever, with gym aware that you can show them, Hey, this is going to make you better on your first step. This is going to make you better here. This is going to get you better in whatever position moving laterally. You have the other guys that are like maybe a little bit older and they want to see changes in their tendon. Hmm. They want to see changes happen on the physical level from a health standpoint. So there's ways that you can buy it, get those guys to buy in and show them, okay, here's the steps that we're going to take to get you where you need to be. You have the guys that want to look good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have the guys that literally just want, they want to look good at the, in the NBA, right? <laughs> I've had multiple players in my tenure where they want to, they always want to lean out and get ripped before all-star break because they're going to the Bahamas, <laughs> right? So you have those you have those types as well. So you're trying to take what they know and then blend it with what they know and what has worked and trying to blend it with where you're trying to go. And you do have to show these, you have to show these guys objective information on like, this is why we're doing what we're doing, you know? So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. I know we only have a few minutes left. I'm going to treat maybe the last couple of questions here as just more of a lightning round. Uh, so just maybe relatively quicker answers because I, I have a few things in my head from what you've been talking about. But on those max strength days, uh, I believe, I mean, hex bars, I'm assuming, are the main. I mean, do you are you putting loads on people's backs or even for like fronts or front squats? Or is it pretty much just like the simple hex bar type lifting? Uh, any application principles there from what you're actually using on those days? No, you, you hit it on the head. We, we pretty much use a hex bar for all of our heavy lifting. If for some reason a quadrant four fell during the week, like we might, I mean, maybe we do a half field, half field split squat of some sort with some support. You know, we do on, on some of our tendon days, like a quadrant two, and we're training that heavy, slow resistance. We will load them up with maybe a half field and have mm-hmm. the tempos with that. But um, for the most part on a, on a quadrant four, we're typically pulling with hex. And then we typically use the hex for our Olympic variations as well. So our clean pulls with the hex, cleans with the hex, jumps with the hex, pretty much uh, there's a lot you can do with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Like from, I mean, I've had so many brilliant people on with just the different components of the big lifts on the show, but I've gotten pretty firm into the idea that a pure explode is deadlift or a hex bar deadlift. Mm-hmm. It's all explode. And that fits with being that if you're doing the same stimulus, with game day, it's all explode. But then squat, you could treat squat like that with maybe explosive half squat, but doing a Hatfield deeper squat with the heels elevated, like that's a load. Like that's that fits mm-hmm. more almost with recovery, like what Eric mm-hmm. Huddleston's talked about. So yeah, it makes sense to me that that would go on that day just as general principle. Sure. 
Okay, lightning round. <laughs> Quick other lightning round. I'd like it that you were talking about, you know, asking players like what they need and showing them what they need to do to get there. And I think, you know, first step, I, I think with like, you know, we've done a ton of talks on power on this show. I'm curious what your bridge the gap is someone who's struggling with like tendon health and, and in the context of the rep stuff or ISOs, mm-hmm. like, is there any standard, as it's easier trendy to have standards, you should be able to do this, but just a little bit about how you'd bridge that gap with the rep and the tendon people and saying what yeah. you need to get better at this. Yeah. So this is an area that I, I became super interested in a couple of years ago in Phoenix when we actually had Keith Barr come in and who actually, I first heard him on your show. Joel. And then after hearing on your show, I was like, I got to get this guy in here. So we brought him in uh, to Phoenix. He presented and we, I loved what he brought to the table and it got me thinking about, you know, how do we apply this to, to NBA basketball and the schedule and, you know, where we are now with, with the Pelicans, you know, we throughout the season, like we have ways of visualizing their tendon health, ways of scanning it and making sure that it's without getting too detailed, but you can assess the tendon during the season. And you can monitor it as the season goes on. And, uh, you know, we work really closely with Jared Anflick. Uh, he's a great resource for us on how we can manage tendon health with each athlete. And the great thing about working with Jared is he he provides a great, a great lens and a great report, really, that helps us show guys, hey, this is where your tendon's at. This is where we want to get it. If we don't get it here, it could end up looking like this. And then this is what it could look like. And when you're able to bucket guys and show them on paper, like this is the change that we made, or this is the change we're trying to make. It's so much easier when you're trying to get somebody on like a heavy, slow resistance tendon protocol. You're talking to a player. We got to do this twice a week. It's going to suck. You know, it's three sets, four sets. You're doing three by 10 at a three, three tempo. This is going to be painful. Uh, You're going to be sore for the first week and then it's probably going to go away. And we got to stick with this throughout the 82 game season. Like, are you on board? <laughs> yeah. You better have some like objective measures that you can show them like, Hey, this is getting better or this is going to get it better. Cool. So as you've done it, uh, three, like three Oh three, I mean, I feel like just moving slow, <laughs> just moving slow and control where there's a controlled pace, be it zero speed or three Oh three, five Oh five. Like, is there any like kind of favorites that you have in that realm that, or just mixing it up or any thought on that? Yeah, I think some of the best research is is done using like the Kongsgard protocol. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it tends to start higher rep and it, it tapers down to like, you know, eight or six. And it's a three, three tempo, three, zero, three. You know, if you're really trying to add a little bit more time under tension, you may add the three second isometric in there as well. It just depends on the case. Um, I'm a fan of the Kongsgard protocol. I think that's a really good HSR program for uh, people trying to improve both patella and Achilles uh, tendon health. That's awesome. Sorry. So, uh, one question that I had that, you know, I, it definitely is not really lightning round, but I'll, I will just ask it anyway, see where we get. But, you know, all these things and people who aren't like, you know, dealing with athletes who have just game after game after game and all this stress in season, off season. So, whatever period of time you might get where athletes aren't doing a ton, how does this all kind of change? So, or where they're not competing, or you said maybe that, that tough practice is the competition. Uh, just a few principles for how this changes when athletes aren't in that 82 game season. I think the number one thing, and this, this is for the season as well, when you're working with development cases and, or player development cases and a guy that maybe isn't playing right now that you're trying to project to be a starter in four or five years, kind of coming to grips with, okay, is, is this guy's limitation skill-oriented or is it physically-oriented, right? So in the offseason, you take a player, maybe he's a really skilled player, unbelievably skilled, but maybe physically he just can't hang or he needs to improve his physique, he needs to improve uh, strength, whatever it is. I've always been kind of in the, under the philosophy of do the most important thing first. So whatever the most important thing on that day is should be the first thing you do. And then you're, you're not, you're not worrying about, you know, fatiguing yourself. So then, you know, motor learning is, is affected at all. And then just like focus is a little, little bit better when it's the first thing that you do, in my opinion. So if a guy is really trying to improve his body in the off season, kind of placing that first in the, in the day, and then building off of that. And then the, the reverse is true. A guy's terribly skilled, but a physical specimen, you, and you're going to train skill first. And that's going to be what you focus on mainly. As far as consolidating stressors, similar to my response to the high school question, I still think you want to keep it generally that where the highs are high and the lows are lows. Obviously, during the off season, you don't have the allostatic load that you have when you're traveling all over the country, multiple time zones, blue light lit arenas, and all the, all the above, right? So you have a bigger room for error and flexibility in the off season. 
to really push guys. And um, it might not matter as much, but I still think generally, I think the high-low model works really well for short-term, short-term and long-term periodization. Got it. So off-season high-low is still the thing, but you're, you're really prioritizing um, just, just getting in weak point work or bringing up weaknesses in the off-season versus once it's in-season, it's kind of like, let's just manage, like let's find the best way to manage and the weaknesses kind of take more of a backseat to just managing stress. 100%. That's exactly how I feel. Right on. Okay, another question that I wanted to get to, because I've brought it up. And again, it's it's kind of something that I mentioned, like with easy strength, things like that. I just think it's it's something that, you know, and do no harm, like the idea of microdosing. So, and I guess you could certainly still do like small doses, microdoses in this system. But what's your view on the idea of, of microdosing work throughout the week? And especially maybe in different situations or coaching contexts. And you're referring to, Joel, like microdosing daily? Yeah, like I, yeah. if I'm trying to build like mat, like max strength by doing a little bit every day, like a set or two every day. Yeah, like you know, easy strength, like you're doing two by five or three by three of some lift, sixty eighty percent probably daily, just to to get work in, but not you're not trying to overload as well at the same time. You know what? With how monotonous the NBA season is, I mean, again, it's eighty two games, and if in preseason that's another five games, postseason that could be another ten to fifteen, depending on where you're at, and then you have summer like it's just a really long mm. season, so. I think the monotony of microdosing in that way probably wouldn't fit great in the NBA. I do think maybe a little bit lower frequency, maybe not daily, doing it every other day could probably work a little bit better. With with the quadrant system, because they're hitting quadrants one through four every week, they're getting they're getting that familiarity, they're getting dosed with things. So it's maybe not microdosing per se, but I think it's achieving a very similar goal. Does that answer the question? Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, and it makes sense. It makes sense that, yeah, it, it is such a unique thing, if, too. If, like if, 82 uh, sorry, games. Uh, sorry, Joel, I, 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 so one thing that we do microdose that I think the microdosing that's done at this level, I do really like is a lot of the lead tap change of direction work. Oh, got it. When we identify that there's a specific movement variation that guys are really poor at, whether it is lateral cutting, whether it's hip turning, and maybe or maybe like a lateral run with like, chest facing in the direction you, where you want them to be and being able to keep eyes, adding that into warmups every day for certain guys, letting that become part of the routine and then microdosing those skill components daily rather than like the heavy lifting microdosing. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, if you try to get a movement to stick, like to have it in the, I mean, if you're just doing like, my thought has always been like, if you're just going to be doing like an agility drill or something once every week or something or every week or two, I, I, compared to everything else you're doing, how are you going to get that to to kind of stick and be a part of mm-hmm. what the, so that makes sense to me that that would be something that, and plus it's not like that, that costs a lot to do that from an energy or load perspective. I, I found like warmups, you know, getting more into the skill and like movement area, like discussion i just found warm-ups both team and individual when you're warming guys up for a lift are the best times to work on these these movement skills so i, I love microdosing from that perspective I'm, I'm a big fan of that cool what are some of the like the go-to or <laughs> i always want to make this into like you know the simple police or like these <laughs> it's easiest for me to understand some in some perspective though because i'm just curious like what are some common like you know lee talks about like the basic like linking skills and and type skills in sport that happen when athletes change direction what might be a movement that like an example of a movement you would microdose that's trying to help someone do something better on the court like i'm curious of a specific example to help me just see that it just from your battery of uh, movement training tools i'm i really like uh, ty terrell talked about this where i think it was was he on your podcast yeah he was on 222 or something like that somewhere in that that range the the fact that you can remember the numbers is amazing. <laughs> I uh, he had he talks a lot about, and I reached out to Ty about this is when I was trying to get guys better at cutting. Was he does on a cable? He does kind of like a lateral cable press that he really likes to do, kind of getting into the hip, out of the hip. I think anything that trains AFIR, the ability to get into IR, out of IR, the ability to adduct and abduct, just getting guys in positions to be able to do those things mm. are going to really, I think, carry over to change of direction activity. So I think anything that focuses on that are big components for me. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense too. I like blending in that, you know, that that PRI and Bill Hartman world into it. 
I think that was something that we either talked about or the last time we did the show, we either were going to talk about it or we did talk about it. But it makes sense that if we can take something that actually like, here's the principles, here's something that fits with you accessing these ranges on the court right? versus if an athlete or an individual doesn't have access to those ranges very well and then we're trying to like, you know, have some drill that puts them there, <laughs> I feel like you're going to get a lot better results just by creating the potential and then, you know, like let you play at least like with that mentality a little bit. And also having the realization of like when you're doing these really heavy trap bar deadlifts or you're doing these sagittal movements, like you kind of are, you're losing variability when you do that because your body has to adapt and it has to kind of hone in on a specific movement strategy to allow yourself to lift that barbell. And you do limit range of motion. You do limit degrees of freedom in other areas when you say, Hey, I want to back squat 500 pounds or I want to deadlift 600. So I've also like kind of over the years, like just kind of started dosing things that involve reciprocal AFIR on each side, like things that make guys, maybe I pair a deadlift with something like a kettlebell self-pass where guys are kind of reciprocally changing each side, contract, relax, just so they're not getting like completely locked up from the sagittal movement. Does that make sense? Yeah. And uh, can you just quickly define AFIR? I mean, I think people who've been to the PRI seminars or Bill Hartman stuff can uh, know what that is, but obviously that's a little bit of a um, nuance of uh, vernacular. So, so basically, it's it's the pelvis uh, moving on the femur rather than the femur moving on the pelvis. And a lot of like the movements that are specific to sport and and change direction and really just gait, it's it's really more the the pelvis moving on the femur than the femur moving on the pelvis. Got it. And then kettlebell self pass is that like a lunge where you just pass in the kettlebell underneath or something like that? Yeah. So I actually I first learned these when I was working with Corey and Phoenix. I mean, you can do them in any plane. I mean, you can do them sagittally, straight forward. You can do them uh, laterally, where it's more of like a like a drop pass with a lunge. Oh yeah, uh, yeah and you yeah. can do them rotationally as well. So I like them because you can actually get into a really good rhythm doing them. And um, so I, I'm a big fan. Yeah, yeah. I know when Corey was doing a lot of those on, on his Instagram, I was I was loving that stuff. Like, or when I train with him, like all oh, the role of the the rhythm and the self pass type stuff. So. Yeah, I, just, I was just, for some reason, I was just thinking about just like the lunge and passing it in between. That was just the thing that kind of came to my head. But maybe I'll take this into the question of what, how do you look about the, or look at the role of rhythm? Like if you're looking mm -hmm. at rhythm and training, is that where the self-pass comes in? If you're going to just give athletes a chance to have some rhythmic qualities of their work? Yeah, I, uh, when I think of rhythm, and I don't know if this is like the textbook answer for what rhythm is, but like how I relate it to sport, I look at any sport that's elastic in nature tends to have rhythm and you look at like a high-speed runner like a runner running at max velocity there's a rhythm between stride and ground contact when they're at that high velocity but when you're watching a basketball player implement an offense you watch a james harden out there you know change a direction baiting someone in cutting to the basket euro whatever it is there's a rhythm to what they're doing and i really think it comes down to making the conscious unconscious and then repeating that and so a lot of what goes into that is being able to contract and relax and continue to contract and relax. And, you know, you can get into what that does, like from like a force plate standpoint, but really like being able to break and then propel yourself and do it repeatedly, I think is a, is a big attribute for basketball. And that's one of the reasons I love the kettlebell self pass. So like, I know people talk about like Franz Bosch, uh, muscle slack. So if you're into that idea, I think self kettlebell passing does a great deal for the athlete there, learning how to, to break quick and then propel to the bottom, but you're learning to relax and contract it as well when you're going from side to side. Yeah. So I think, I think that component is, is super beneficial and I don't think is used really enough in the industry. No, it's like a, it's a more purposeful oscillatory isometric. Yeah. I, I've yeah. been really into oscillatory isometrics for a long time, but I, I'm kind of linking to what you're saying about it's a long season, <laughs> you know, just to, <laughs> rather than having like, you know, a lift with just kind of very like kind of bland instructions, contract maximally, then bounce, like you get to just do something. You get, all right, yeah. we're going to drop this. We're going to work with this implement. And, and I love those for warmups too. I mean, there's guys on game nights. I love doing self-kettlebell passing as a way to just kind of warm the guy up and get him feeling certain positions. And you are, I mean, you're trading, you're training that amortization phase at the bottom as well of the lunge. So it's like you're, there's a lot of things you can you can gain from doing that. Yeah, right on. Okay, so last question is just simply, where can people learn more more about you, Daniel? Find your book. How can they, if they're interested in learning a little bit more, where where do they go? Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at Daniel Bove, also Twitter at Daniel Bove, and then my website is athleteframework.com. Uh, we have the hard hard copy 
of the book up there and some Excel templates if you're interested in that. And uh, we have a link to the ebook if you want to check that out too. Awesome. Well, very cool. Well, hey, I'm I'm glad we could make it happen this time a year and a half or so later. And uh, thank you so much for being on, Daniel. I mean, I tell you, I I live vicariously through like I, I've never had the opportunity to work with uh, professional team sport athletes and you know, I've worked with pro swimming a little bit, but it's just so much fun and, and interesting to hear how you solve that unique, you know, unique setting that unique, I guess you call it a problem of how do I deal with all this stress in this long season. And it's just so cool to see how your mind works. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Joel, it was an honor to be on here. I've been a fan of your podcast for a long time and uh, I'm just really thankful. Thank you for having me on, man. It was fun. Thanks for tuning in for another show. It was great having you. And if you like what we're doing here, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you're listening to this show on. I would totally appreciate it. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest.